Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. This week, we're looking at lifestyle medicine. What exactly is it, and how can it help GPs to support their patients? I'm speaking to Dr. Ellen Fallows, a GP in Northamptonshire and Vice President of the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. In this conversation, Ellen explains what makes lifestyle medicine different to simply providing advice about healthy living, how GPs can make use of lifestyle medicine in a 10-minute consultation, and some of the evidence that supports the use of this approach to help improve outcomes for patients. This interview was recorded at the end of last year. I'm joined today by Dr. Ellen Fallows, who's a GP in Northamptonshire and the Vice President of the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. She also runs video group clinics supporting people to make and sustain lifestyle changes for self-management of long-term conditions. Alan's also involved in primary care research, including trials piloting primary care support for dietary change to treat hypertension, obesity and type 2 diabetes. Thanks so much for joining us, Alan. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Emma. Firstly, can you explain a bit about what lifestyle medicine is and what makes it different to just providing advice about healthy living? I would love to because this is such an area of confusion. And at the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine, we're doing a lot of work to try and clarify what exactly it means. So the def- definition that we've come up with from the BSLM, the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine, is that it's evidence-based healthcare that supports behaviour change through person-centred techniques to improve mental well-being, healthy relationships, physical activity, healthy eating, sleep, and minimization of harmful substances or behaviors. But what does that really mean? I mean, I think in, in plain language, it just means this is an additional option for people with health problems rather than just medications and surgery alone. And research has shown that with the right support, some of these lifestyle changes can be just as good or even more effective than um, medications and surgery. And the thing that makes me most excited about this is that in some instances, these changes can put long-term conditions into remission. So reversal of things like the processes that lead to high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, fatty liver disease, depression, and, and there's lots of work into many other conditions. Lifestyle medicine isn't lifestyle advice. It's very different. There are three key principles, the first being a recognition and action to address the socioeconomic determinants of of health, which perhaps we'll come to discuss. The second being behavior change techniques. So proven ways to support people to make and sustain um, behavior change, because most people know what it is they need to do. It's just very hard to do in our current environment and with all the challenges around us. And the third being these um, six pillars of lifestyle medicine. So how did you first become interested in lifestyle medicine? Well, it was my own patience, actually. I I think I have to be humble and and admit that initially I was a bit arrogant about the patients who came to me and said, look, I've cured my type 2 diabetes. I've come off insulin. And back then I was, as the diabetes lead in my practice, I I was going to courses where I was being told, you know, it's it's a chronic progressive condition. You must warn people early that they will end up on insulin. And and I was like, oh, don't be ridiculous. But uh, there was one case when I really, I don't know why I really started to listen to um, the patient and talked through well, exactly they were eating actually at the time. And it turned out that because of the desperate thirst that comes with uh, diabetes that's poorly controlled, they were quenching their thirst with, uh, it turned out, three litres of orange juice because they thought that that was healthy. It's um, fruit, you're told to eat fruit and fruit juice is meant to be one of the uh, sort of five, your five a day. And, you know, we worked out that there was some something like eight teaspoons of sugar in each one of those cartons, if not more, and and added that up. 
advised them to gosh replace it with water and they came back literally unrecognizable and with normal blood sugars and i'd just never seen them their blood sugars were something like 14 percent um hb1c of 14 percent when i met them and completely normalized through just that intervention because i'd never previously talked to people about food and physical activity and i don't know i mean just maybe thought somebody else was doing it or i don't know didn't think it worked or wasn't important or the people sort of knew and then i was very lucky to be involved in a very small pilot trial um from the nuffield department primary healthcare in oxford led by liz morris um where they randomized a very it's a it's a pilot it's a very small numbers 30 people um into three arms so usual advice just eat healthy advice and the third arm being an actual behavior change program so you know supporting people with real life primary care nurses to change what they eat to to reduce their their calories into a healthier diet and the patients we supported on that i mean they lost on average a stone that group compared to the other groups they they dropped their blood sugar despite coming off um hypoglycemic agents and and a couple of them reversed their diabetes and from type 2 diabetes this is and from that experience i thought oh my god i mean i've i don't know about your listeners but i had never cured anybody and we're not meant to use the word cure because of course their risks still remain and if they don't maintain those but it felt it felt good you know it felt so much better than piling on all these drugs that make people put on weight feel rubbish and then i discovered the bslm and, and learned about the real evidence behind this that's that's really rapidly growing you mentioned earlier the six pillars of lifestyle medicine. Can you just explain what they are? So I love the fact that the top two actually are probably one of the uh, some of the most important. So the top two are sort of mental well-being and healthy relationships. And I think there's a there's a piece of work that always sticks in my mind. A, a global study by Professor Elizabeth Holt Lundstad, who looked at millions and millions of people and their data about this feeling of being isolated, and found that it was a bigger risk factor for early death than obesity and smoking combined. And so I think, you know, that there's just not enough conversations happening in primary care around, you know, the relationships around people and, and their general well-being, purpose and meaning in life. So those are the first two um, that we like to do a lot of work on. And then, you know, the one that I think gets everybody in a bit of a storm um, that's only just one of them is the healthy eating Physical activity, I think, is a bit less controversial um, and, and everybody can get behind that. Um, and then there's avoidance of, of, of harmful substances, harmful behaviours. You know, we talk a lot about um, you know, screen time and social media and things, not just the usual sort of alcohol and smoking. And then the importance of sleep for health. So, again, I've, I'd had no training in sleep, um, but, but interventions that can help people um, prioritise sleep as well as get better quality sleep. So those are the six pillars. Is it something that GPs can actually do in practice? Other GPs can do in practice in a 10 minute consultation do you think definitely i mean i'm do i'm doing it many colleagues of mine are doing it but i would caveat that with i don't think anything effective can be done in 10 minutes it's madness that that this 10 minute model is based on on the sort of care we were able to, to provide um, many years ago when you would have multiple hundreds of 10 minute slots with somebody over their lifetime that same person and that added up to hours and hours of care and relationship based um care where where you really knew somebody and they trusted you and a 10 minute slot is a dispensing slot and that's the big worry i have about where things are going that total breakdown of continuity means that 
any good medicine is difficult to do, let alone lifestyle medicine, but particularly lifestyle medicine, because it does involve that that more person-centered care where you're asking people, you know, what really matters to you about your health right now? And then you sit back and listen and you listen and listen and you do less and, and get out that prescribing pad far less, it turns out, which in the end, to me, feels much less onerous because if we empower people if we really listen to what they want to do they're more likely to do it it involves more of them doing stuff than us doing stuff and and eventually it's much less intensive perhaps than endless tests endless uh prescriptions which then require monitoring and we all get so drawn down a rabbit hole with all of those things and and can end up just reviewing the tablets and not the person I'm sure listeners uh, experience this, you know, people booking in for a medication review when really that's not what they want to talk about. They want to talk about what, what matters to them in their life, their stress, the fact that they're a carer. And it's those things that are preventing them from making the changes they know they need to make perhaps around, um, you know, diabetes or, or their mood. And that's where group consultations are, I'm finding, such a useful tool in primary care because it doesn't require any more time in your rotor but you get longer with people and and they get longer to think about what really matters to them. You talked a bit about that study that you were involved in, that really small pilot study. What other evidence is there to show that lifestyle medicine really actually makes a difference to people's health? Yes, and this is where I get very excited because I think I'm I'm the geek in in the BSLM. So this this is what I think um, uh, we really need to get out there to people a bit more is that there is really good evidence behind this. So the first piece of evidence is is the epidemiological studies that that I think everybody is is on board with. So we're talking about inter-heart, million women, EPIC, PREDIMED, Lionheart study, these have shown a very strong association, which is different from uh, the sort of RCT level evidence, but there's a definite association between lifestyle and health. I think everybody accepts. But but very excitingly now with a lot of of lab-based studies on the cellular mechanisms that explain why and how, which I think really gets a lot more people on board. So there's the the epigenetics area. So Professor Elizabeth Blackburn, Nobel Prize winner, all her work into epigenetics and telomeres and that, that our lifestyle our factors turn on and off our genes. So I'm a child of the 1980s when, you know, it was all the human genome project and our our fate's not in the stars anymore, it's in our genes. And this sort of feeling of of genetic fatalism that, you know, if your parents had it, well, you're going to have it too and you just need to take drugs, there's nothing you can do. That message has definitely changed. Of course, there are genetic components to a lot of things, but not only are those genetic components only a small part, but they can also be modulated. So they can be turned on and off through lifestyle. And the other exciting area is this idea of chronic inflammation underlying many of our long-term conditions. So that's work from Professor Hata Mistagil and his, um, his groups. And the third one, which I think is getting everybody very excited, is, the, is microbiome science. So that idea that we're moving away from that food is just like fuel, just coal, you know, it's just calories, just chugging it. doesn't matter if it's poor quality calories or, or good quality calories. It's the quality of the food and the food matrix that matters because we're feeding our gut bugs and they are critical for um, our health. And, and all of this sort of ties into the work around ultra processed food. And Kevin Hall has done a lot of work around that, which is very exciting. But what us clinicians want to know is what interventions actually work. And, and we are starting to see now um, randomized controlled trials of, of lifestyle interventions that we never saw before. And that upsets me because I think what worries me is that there's very little money in, in those lives. You know, for, for, there's no drugs yes. to be sold. Yes. 
And that, that worries me that if, if you look at the work around asking patients what it is that you want uh, research to, to look into, if patients are asked, then they ask for evidence around lifestyle. They, they rarely ask for more drugs. So it worries me that it's going to be hard to find funding for this. The first major study into food interventions for or lifestyle interventions for type 2 diabetes was funded by a charity, Diabetes UK. So that's the direct trial by Roy Taylor and, and his colleagues up in Newcastle. And, and we need many more of those. And that's going to need uh, you know, government and IHR funding to try and get that type of intervention because it's complex. It's going to be very expensive. It's harder to assess. It's not as easy to have placebos. It's not as easy to have control groups, but it is possible. And the direct trial, I think, really did it for me when it, it showed that this intervention, which is a, a low calorie um, meal replacement, so a food manipulation and a behavior change, um, support program can put diabetes in, into type 2 diabetes into remission. So are there any other conditions which um, lifestyle medicine can help with? So the other big trial that really excites me is the SMILES trial by Professor Felice Jacker of the Food and Mood Centre in, in Australia. So in that trial, this was looking at patients with, with treatment-resistant depression who tr failed on the second-line antidepressants, and they were hoping that just supporting them a bit with healthier eating might improve their mood scores a little bit. Well, it didn't. It actually put their depression into remission. So they reported complete um, freedom of depressive symptoms in a, a substantial proportion. I think it's about, again, about that 40% mark. So, and, and then a number needed to treat that was as good as something like sertraline, an antidepressant that we frequently use. So we just aren't talking enough about, you know, not just food, but physical activity, social connection. There's also a finger randomized control trial. It's called a lifestyle intervention to prevent cognitive decline reported in the Lancet in 2015. So a lifestyle intervention reduced um, the risk of dementia. So, so more and more of these types of interventions are being looked at. There's a big one that Dean Ornish is now looking into yet to report on prostate cancer. So interventions for cancer. So he's, he's shown that with um, lifestyle intervention of prostate cancer, that the genes related to prostate cancer progression were downregulated by lifestyle intervention. Of course, you need much longer studies to show that it might actually you know, reverse cancerous changes, but it's a start. You mentioned much earlier on about the socioeconomic factors affect health. Where does lifestyle medicine fit in in helping to address some of these health inequalities? Yeah, I'm really glad you've uh, brought this up, Emma, because it is something that um, I think we've got to address head on in, in, in lifestyle medicine because it's it, there is a perception that sort of wellness and lifestyle is, is only for the preserve of the wealthy and those who can and and the sort of Gwyneth Paltrow sort of aspect of it. But I, I, I refuse to be told that we must only talk about this with our wealthy patients and, and that we must therefore just prescribe to those who are facing greater challenges and hardship. I think that what it, what it means is that we must provide more support to those who need it most and that we mustn't underestimate the role in, in particularly in primary care of supporting people to access the means to live well because it is so critical because of the effect of lifestyle. So that's access to benefits, letters for housing, social prescribing, access to food banks, advocacy for those who are suffering abuse, those who are vulnerable, the importance of picking up child abuse and those that the idea of adverse childhood experiences setting you on a trajectory for life. And most importantly, I think just 
validating people's experiences. Um, and, and that's a major role, I think, of a GP is those who aren't able to raise their voice. Uh, we, we must stand up for them more. And then when we do have leadership roles, we need to shout more about these groups and, and the fact that they need additional help. And I think we've got to be so careful in lifestyle medicine that the lifestyle medicine is not a policy tool. We, we mustn't have what, what Marmot calls this lifestyle drift in policy that's very much blaming the individual and saying, well, you know, you know that you shouldn't eat ultra processed food because that we mustn't. It, it is not a tool for population health or public health. It is a tool for the individual small group and at a consultation level that when, it, when provided using very person centered care, individualized to the person in front of you, where you listen to what matters most to them. If they need support with their housing first before you talk about vegetables, then that's what you need to do. But I think we're working very hard at the BSLM to really clarify that we do not want the government to do lifestyle medicine. It is something that is not what we need them to address is the socioeconomic determinants of health. It's providing people with what they need to live healthily because it is so important. But clinicians can discuss these things at an individual level and everybody is able to make some changes if they're given the right support. I think. So you mentioned group consultations and you have been involved in running group consultations to help people self-manage their long-term conditions. How do you think group consultations can help? And is it something you would really encourage other practices to, to start doing? I was a very sceptical initially. I, you know, obsessed about confidentiality and thought, gosh, nobody's going to, you know, talk about private stuff. I've had, you know, 60-year-old men who I've struggled with for 10 years as their GP to, you know, the yes, but patient, you know, oh, I can't do it. And in a group broke down crying, um, shared that they really felt very angry about their mother who they were caring for. The other men in that, this were men in the group saying, come on, mate, you know, she wouldn't want to see you like this. What are you doing? You need to get some help. This is what I did. I was just where you were. This is why you can't move on with your diabetes, you know, um, transformational stuff. Uh, and and it just needed me to facilitate it. So I think they're very powerful. I imagine, obviously, you'd want to see lifestyle medicine adopted across the NHS. But what do you think needs to happen to, to make that a reality? It's happening. It's the first thing. And that's what's so heartwarming. I mean, I think it, things have got so bad um, throughout healthcare in terms of, you know, overprescribing too much medicine. Not only do we know that what we're doing is currently causing a lot of harm, it's also extraordinarily expensive when that money could be better spent on those socioeconomic determinants. It's grassroots. This is happening from the grassroots. So the BSLM is is growing hugely. Doctors are out there doing it, nurses, pharmacists, health coaches. So it is happening. And, and medical students are the, are the easiest to discuss about this because they haven't sort of been indoctrinated in, in the sort of paradigm of, of the, the old way of seeing things. And that's what the BSLM is doing. That's what I'm doing with the um, Learning Academy. Um, we're going to we need our own core UK textbooks. We're going to need professors in lifestyle medicine. We need more intervention trials, more pilot pilots of real life um, and, and involvements of patients. You know, the James Lynn Foundation does some excellent work asking patients, what is it that you want us to, to research? We need them to do more of that for lifestyle medicine. Um, and we need a very careful eye on the agenda of this idea of precision medicine and, um, you know, big pharma. 
So we are not uh, at all against medications. We have some fabulous medications and I prescribe every day, but we have got to put lifestyle interventions on the same level as those other interventions and present them in that way also in our consultations with patients to give them choice. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much to Ellen for speaking with me. You can find more information and links to the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine in the description for this episode. I'll be back next week. In the meantime, don't forget you can keep up to date with all the latest news affecting general practice on our website at gponline.com. 